0: Hello, Hoopaholics! It's Coach Spins here from the Box and One, back with another episode of the Box and One podcast. I'm thrilled today to have a, a long time uh, guy that I've been a fan of and his work online. But as we talked about just before coming on here and recording, really our first time ever collaborating or beating in the same space together. So we've got Richard Stamen from uh, online, better known as Mavs Draft. He's found in a million different spots and does a ton of great NBA draft content and coverage. Uh, Rich, thank you so much for joining us. How the hell are you, my friend?
1: Dude, I'm great. It's really exciting to be here. Listen to your stuff a lot so uh, and read your stuff also a lot more, actually, but really excited to be here, so appreciate you having me.
0: Yeah, this has been a long time coming from the two of us. I know we've been talking for many draft cycles and, and a couple uh, a couple months about trying to do something together, and I think this was the right opportunity to do so. Uh, today, Rich and I are going to be driving diving into conference tournament previews as the big six, as they're known, the six major power conferences in college basketball are really tipping off with their conference tournaments, might be the last chance to see some prospects before this season wraps up, and then a lot hanging in the balance as we get one final look at them going head-to-head with each other and teams that really know uh, their opponents well. But before we get to that, we've got a new segment here on the Box and One podcast, really going through... Something that's just on my mind lately. A quick 90 seconds of what I call the pregame speech just to get us fired up about basketball and, and what's really been, been on my mind. And today's is an interesting topic. Um, I keep envisioning this scenario where there is one major Cinderella that makes the Cinderella run of all Cinderella runs. And it's because they have recently moved up to the Division One level but actually have a roster filled with Division II players or guys who haven't been at that level for a long period of time. What an unbelievable story it would be, not only for a team like that to make the NCAA tournament, but then have the opportunity to go on and win a game or two. And I feel like we're robbed of that right now because the NCAA has a, in my opinion, ludicrous rule that they should look at overturning, where teams that are transitioning from other levels into Division I are ineligible to participate in the NCAA tournament until they are a fully transitioned member. And I think that this punishes the players who quite frankly are doing an amazing thing by putting themselves in a position to even qualify for the tournament, despite not having the history of a division one program, not having all of the normal facilities and budget that have been at that program's disposal for a number of years. And it's so timely right now to have this discussion because this isn't just a theoretical. This is reality where Merrimack College up in Massachusetts has won the Northeast Conference. In the Northeast Conference tournament, they were the best team throughout the entire season. They won the tournament by one over Fairleigh Dickinson. And they're not going to be able to move on into the NCAA tournament with March Madness. It's a ludicrous Penalty, it's robbing us fans of the ultimate Cinderella experience to be able to root for. My heart goes out to Joey Gallo, a friend of mine who's the head coach there and does a fantastic job. Like, this is just kind of a a brutal situation. And as a fan of basketball, as someone who just wants to see some amazing storylines come to life in March, I feel like the NCAA is definitely getting this one wrong. Now that we're coming out of the locker room and it's time to get into actually what we're here to listen to. Uh, Rich and I going back and forth on a lot of NBA draft stuff as we get through conference tournament previews. We're going to start in the ACC, Rich. And the reason for that is as we're recording this here on Tuesday night, uh, that tournament is actually already underway. We've had two first round games with Florida State and Georgia Tech playing earlier today. Uh, as well as, you know, another contest that that went there. And and as we're moving forward, I can't help but think that the ACC tournament, from an NBA draft standpoint, is really all about Duke. That the Blue Devils have the most NBA draft prospects for this year, as well as really some intriguing and fascinating guys that have been hard to peg during this draft cycle. So I'm going to do the thing that's very uh dishonorable for a host of a podcast to do rich and i'm just going to open up the floor to you to take this in any direction that you want here like what is your take on the season that duke has had specifically with some of the prospects that they have moving forward
1: yeah it's been a, a roller coaster just top to bottom i mean from a team perspective i think we all expected them to be a consistent top 25 team they haven't been that they their prospects i mean their top three prospects the third ranked one has probably been the best one all season from a college perspective and Kyle Filipowski. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: actually fourth, really Tyrese, depending on where Tyrese Proctor was on whichever board you use, Tyrese Proctor looked a lot more raw than I anticipated coming over from the NBA Academy. Derek Lively had a terrible non-conference schedule outside of Maryland Eastern shore, which for those, (laughs) for those who don't know Maryland Eastern shore, I mean, they were fine in the MEAC they were 17 and 12, but like, it's not great competition. The one saving grace for him, though, is really since uh, you could you could stretch this however you want to cherry pick it. I like going back to the Miami game, January twenty first. Since then, it's pretty consistent. He's a solid six and seven with three blocks. He had a game against Miami, six points, ten rebounds, five blocks, and he would do with a lot of that. I mean, the game against North Carolina was probably his very best flash. And he had four points, he had four points, two assists, fourteen rebounds, eight blocks. And just one turnover, so you see those flashes of a dominant big man down low, and it's hard not to be intrigued. Uh, so I'm, I still am holding on to my Lively sock, and then Derek Whitehead, I have no idea what to do with. I, I just, I really don't.
0: <laughs> yeah, there. I mean, there's so many fascinating pieces here, and for those who haven't tuned into a lot of college basketball over the season, like Derek Lively was by most accounts one of the number one prospects of of high school coming into college basketball, and. I think scouts were preseason a little bit more of a like late lottery, maybe mid to late first round guy on him because he is a rim running big man. He is more of a rim protector who doesn't have a ton of reliable skill away from the basket. And he had a dreadful start to the season where there were people doubting if he would even be a one and done. Should he come back to college basketball? He was overtaken in their rotation by a, a grad transfer from Northwestern, Ryan Young, who really wasn't expected to have a lot of impact on that Duke team, was expected to be Lively's backup. But what we have seen, you mentioned that Miami game as being a, a turning point for him there in January. In the 13 games since then, again, 6.5 six points, 7 boards, but he's shooting 68% from the field. He's blocking three shots a game, and Duke is 10-3 and three in that span. So what Lively has done to turn around the season has not just saved his one-and-done draft stock and perhaps restored him as a first-round draft prospect, which I believe he is, uh, but it has also saved the Blue Devils season and has them coming into this ACC tournament as one of the hottest teams out there. And I think that what that affords is more opportunity for us as scouts to watch guys like Tyrese Proctor, Kyle Filipowski, and Derek Whitehead and try to get a better feel for where they kind of belong on boards. It's, it's really challenging. So the lively context is key. The other context here is Derek Whitehead. Suffered a ton of injuries over the summer and the preseason and just hasn't been healthy. Got banged up once or twice during the regular season as well and had to miss a couple of games. But he's a 6'6 scoring wing who just doesn't seem to have much burst or separation off the bounce. His shot profile right now is very three-point heavy which is not something that I expected as much out of him coming into college. Were, were you pretty high on Whitehead coming into this season? Where were you at?
1: Yeah, I, w- I didn't buy into the original like top five hype. I, I thought okay. he was really intriguing as a three-level scoring wing was really how I'd seen him. But what had always worried me, I'm, I'm, I got it a little bit backwards. I thought the the mid-range and the inside scoring would actually be pretty good and the three-point shot would lag behind. But it's actually kind of been the opposite. Yeah where his three-point shot and his touch have been fantastic because, like, I don't know how to describe the shot without doing it, but he does this thing with his guide hand and drives me nuts where he'll shoot, and then his guy, he looks like a nail mailman, and I'm like, bro, like, what? I hate, I'm a stickler for, like, a clean guide hand. And every time it just, like, he's like, you know, he just whiffed you on a handshake kind of thing is what it looks like. So I'm really shocked that it's been that clean and that successful. As for the burst, I thought it was – good against high school it wasn't it didn't seem like elite or anything i wonder how much is the injury plus the added weight it's hard to tell that's something where i feel like the workouts after a month of not playing competitive basketball is going to help him a lot
0: yeah he he's going to be a tough one to peg down through this process because like you i had most concerns about him as a scorer from behind the three point line and for him to have this much touch and consistency as a shooter on the season I think bodes well for his long-term draft stock. The question is, is he going to be able to recover some of that burst and athleticism that just helps him get into the lane, be more of a three-level scorer as opposed to a guy who's solely reliant on operating from 18 feet and beyond. So there's a lot to consider with Whitehead. I think a really good NCAA tournament would do him well. Uh, I had him as actually the top prospect in college basketball coming into this draft cycle. I was really high on Whitehead. and, And for much about his intangibles, his competitiveness. I think he's just one of those kids that you don't want to bet against. Uh, I, how much of that changes after a season like we've seen, I don't know, but he's going to be one of the stranger draft stocks to watch. And I, I agree with your assertion that there's so much that comes from the, the pre-draft workout process. Any thoughts on Kyle Filipowski or Tyrese Proctor and just kind of what you see from them, whether it's this year or in the future?
1: Yeah, I think Proctor is an next year guy. I'm not, I really liked him preseason. I thought his space creation and just shot creation ability would be better. I think it's a full off season in America. Like I think he came over kind of late too. I know he reclassified. I think it would do him a lot of good. So I like him long-term, but with Filipowski, I've never really liked him in the high school element. Like I didn't think he was just, I was like, yeah, he's bigger than everybody and he shoots well. That'll probably translate, but I didn't think he'd do anything else. But I've actually been pleasantly surprised. He passes off of drives. He has a good motor. He knows where to be. He's a good rebounder, too. Um, I think he's not the black hole I thought he'd be on defense. And like he's not great on defense by any means, but when you aren't a glaring liability where you can just be played off so easily, you can shoot, you have instincts. I think there's a spot for you when you're 6'11", foot. So I've been impressed with what I've seen from him.
0: Yeah, I think of him as a late first round guy right now just because the offensive package is much more diverse than I, I saw coming into high school, uh, or excuse me, coming out of high school. I was able to watch him actually go against Derek Lively in an AAU game a couple of years ago, and, and those two were guarding each other and really going at it. There's one thing I can say about Kyle Filipowski, it's that he's hyper competitive. So I, I, those are guys that I would want to bet on figuring out how to find a way to survive defensively in the league certainly doesn't help that he's almost seven feet tall. Um, where, where are you at on the rest of the ACC here, Rich? Do you have other guys that, that you think are either first-round draft picks or anybody that stands out to you? Because outside of Duke, like this is a really confusing type of field.
1: Yeah, there's there's like four guys who I like. Obviously, um, if anybody who's listening or you yourself have been following and you know who I'm going for here, but Isaiah Wong is my guy. Yeah, you know, he mounted it. Yep. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so Isaiah Wong is my guy. I mean, I think, um, first of all, he's listed at 6'4". He's, he's not 6'4". Um, he's probably 6'2 and a half, if I have to guess yeah. at most. But I really do like him. He just won ACC Player of the Year. I think he's at the minimum intriguing. He's the best space creator in college basketball in my opinion like he I, I tweeted a video from what most guys would have ended up being the splits he just he yeah. extended his leg as far as it is physically possible had no pain or anything went into it did a spin and just got the foul it is crazy so i really do like him he's done everything scouts have asked him to do improved the three point shot and the free throw percentage reduced the dip i like him judah Mintz is an intriguing freshman um i liked him a lot out of high school i was shocked he was such a late signee and then turquavion smith who I thought he's one of those guys where the three point percentage just doesn't add up to the what the eye test says. And a lot of it is that he plays so far away from the line. Like they do not let him even go near the three point line. So, like, you're not going to be able to shoot 40% when you're shooting deep for what even as NBA can standard. So, I'm intrigued by those guys. Um, those are like the big three for me.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I think those three guys are in a, a position to play themselves into maybe an additional role here during the ACC tournament and and move up a lot of draft boards. It's it's funny because all three are kind of undersized scoring guards to a certain degree. I think Judah Mintz is probably the best passer of that group, but uh, those guys are a dying breed at the NBA level. And even though we can see the talent and the upside and their ability to impact games, I just wonder how much room there is for them to really climb up draft boards because we're just trending so much more in the NBA towards length and athleticism, positional versatility, guys who can guard or play two through four. It, it's, it's going to be a challenge for those in that regard, but certainly good a good list of players to watch for those tuning in for NBA draft purposes. Anything else on the ACC from you, Rich?
1: I, I think that's mostly it. I mean, yeah. Really, for me, the test comes. I, I'm hoping to see one more round of virginia versus honestly any of those guys that we just listed it would be a miracle for syracuse but it is possible for miami to meet them in the in the final they're the number one seed against reese beekman he is like the ultimate benchmark i think for where you want to see how your guard does just watch them play against virginia if they play well that's probably a telling sign and if they play poorly could also be a telling sign
0: yeah and again, even a, a Duke Virginia championship game there would be a, a real thriller because uh, you know, I, I think for us it's the contrast of styles, right. Duke wanted to lock down the paint and and maybe have a little bit more mismatch stuff on the wings with their size with three through five. And then Virginia really being able to take advantage of Duke's immaturity in the backcourt in some regard. So some fascinating games there in the ACC. Let's let's pivot now to the, the West Coast. Uh, I think a lot of times we get accused of East Coast bias here and not giving the early spotlight to those guys out West. So let's dive into the Pac-12 here. And, and look, UCLA is a loaded team right now. They've been one of the best, if not the best team over the last six weeks in college basketball. They've got experience. They've got some fun young players on their roster. Adem Bona has climbed up my board a lot lately. Jaime Jaquez is just a very solid multi-year college player who does have a pro future. Jalen Clark, I think, might be the best defender in college basketball and at six, five with real length and great instincts that could translate to the pro level. I know there are a lot of people who want to talk about Amari Bailey as well. Like this UCLA team is stacked, but before we dive into them, I just want to ask, is there another 2023 draft prospect in this conference that you can reliably say will be there on draft night?
1: I actually think there's two and one of both of them. I think I'm higher than almost anybody else. One of them is Tristan De Silva, uh, brother of former Pac-12 prospect Oscar De Silva, who, uh, for those who wanted to know what happened to him, he's now on FC Barcelona. He's doing very well for himself in Europe. But Tristan De Silva is, I I personally think he's just being scouted wrong uh, by a lot of people, not, not necessarily by everybody or anything. But I think people are looking at him as this complete forward that Colorado is trying to make him out to be, where he's averaging 16 points a game, five rebounds, two assists, one assist, somewhere around there. He's playing some defense, but... For me, it really stands out just how good of a shooter he is. I, I think he's going to be a 6'8 shooting specialist that can do other things when asked, but mostly be an NBA shooter. And for me, when you look at just that portfolio, just the shooting, if you'd made him purely a shooter, I think he really sticks in the NBA. And then I also like Muhammad Gay from Washington State. It's really fun to gamble on 6'11 guys who can <laughs> ISO and play and stand hold their own on an island defensively. And yeah. he can shoot threes.
0: Yeah, I mean Gay is an intriguing guy. I know we everyone's heard his name come up a lot through the cycle. He had one of the better prospect games I've seen this year, actually, in their upset win at Arizona. I thought Gay was fantastic for Washington State there. The so Silva one's a, a fascinating pick. He's not a name that we hear a ton coming up in draft circles and maybe part of that is Colorado and the way that they're using him. But I also think part of it is that the PAC 12 is just kind of having a down year right now, especially in terms of draft prospects. There's a guy, Khalil Ware, who's a freshman at Oregon. A lot of folks had high expectations for him. He's pretty much buried on their, their bench right now. And that could be for a variety of reasons. I don't necessarily want to speculate when I don't have that information available, but at the very least it's nearly impossible to consider him a 2023 draft prospect. So with that said, Rich, let's just pivot back to UCLA because uh, I asked a question on one of my Friday prospect polls that I tend to do uh, about a week or so ago, trying to compare all these UCLA prospects to figure out who the one is that has the best pro potential. Where do you weigh in on that? Who do you think will be the best NBA player currently on this UCLA team?
1: I think you're probably gonna agree with me. I think it has to be a dembona yeah. he can i mean he is a true he can guard anybody on the floor like he can guard an iso doesn't matter who it is at the minimum. he's not gonna be a liability. he may not lock you down if it's a guard, but he is very switchable. The jump shot may or may not ever come i don't think they need i don't think he needs it even and then yeah. he's great in the pick and roll so I think he sticks. He has a very modern, big skill set. Don't expect him to be you know, 10 and 10 every night, but expect him to be a positive player every single night.
0: Yeah, his motor is insane. Uh, I think that there is a lot of offensive skill upside for somebody like him, even though he's not necessarily used that way at UCLA. But the fact that he's found impact on both ends of the floor as a freshman and continue to get better throughout the season has caught my eye. One of the things that I like about Bona is that he moves so well on the perimeter. He's active and engaged, but he's laterally quick. I'm noticing in the NBA much more that teams are, defensively playing ball screens at the level being more aggressive as opposed to just dropping back into deep drop coverage in center field and daring people to beat them with mid-range pull-ups. I think guards are too good at that at the NBA level nowadays, so having a big man who can move his feet and control at the point of attack like Bona is really really important. Uh, you know, my my affinity for him right now doesn't necessarily mean that I think Jaime Haquez or Jalen Clark aren't good pro prospects. I think both of them are going to end up inside my top 40, maybe top 45. Clark has some work to do with offensive reliability. I think that there was a peak earlier this season in his jump shot and it started to come back down to earth. That's somewhat worrisome and then Haquez is just a good basketball player. I don't know if he has a true position, something that you can rely on him doing on an NBA floor other than knowing how to just make an impact out there And, and I think those guys are winning basketball players more times than not.
1: Yeah, and I I actually—it's funny—I used to be like a hawkheads hater almost, but I've really turned the corner this year. It's been really impressive his passing from the high post. I don't think he's good enough defensively to to stick. Is going to be his downfall. Like otherwise, you could make the argument like he could follow the trajectory of like someone Grant Williams or something, but he just doesn't have the jump shot. I don't think is there enough. Plus, defense is also not there.
0: So defensively, like he's a really smart team defender, but in the NBA, they find ways to abuse you at the point of attack. And I just don't know what position he guards well enough. But at the end of the day, I think there's such a diversity of skills that he brings to the table that I'd be willing to give him a shot somewhere in the second round and just think that he can come in and and help a, a winning team out by fitting into that culture. So that's really the Pac-12 as far as I see it. It's UCLA and it's everybody else. Like Azulis Tabellis has some intrigue as a step-out big man, but I worry about him getting played off the floor defensively. There is no high-end lottery prospect this year. No Ben Matherin, no like number one overall pick candidate like a DeAndre Ayton or Markel Fultz. This is very much a back-end of the first or second round heavy conference right now. So. Uh, if your team is controlling a high-level pick and this is your opportunity to tune in for March, uh, I would steer clear of the Pac-12, to be honest with you. But that can segue us here to the Big East, which does have one prospect who I expects to be a lottery pick on draft night, and that is Cam Whitmore for Villanova. The Wildcats might not make the NCAA tournament. In fact, it's highly unlikely that unless they go out there and win the Big East tournament, that they'll be playing on the grandest stage here in March. That said, they've been really good lately, and Whitmore has found efficiency over his last few weeks. Where are you at on Cam? What are your thoughts on on him as a pro prospect? And do you think that he's more of a top end of the lottery or back end of the lottery guy?
1: I'm, I'm honestly sticking with everything I've had preseason. I think it's been a little bit weird. He's also somebody who faced some injuries and, and a, just a learning curve almost because of it. I'm still holding my stock as like a top five, six prospect. I think somebody who is six, seven, give or take an inch being able to be that athletic. I mean, his USA tape from the summer granted the competition was very weak was unbelievably yeah. impressive i think that showed and that was better spacing i feel like in college was for what he will be doing in the nba where he was doing hop steps and then just dunking which that's a 2k move and i don't know and you see that stuff in real life like the best of the best athletes pull that off he's also a really tough shooter over contests i think the creation will have to come i like him a lot i think he's going to be just he fulfills that for, that frame kind of uh, archetype of what you want from a wing right plays enough defense shoots he's going to pass I think eventually I don't know how good he actually is now I I go back and forth yeah and he can you know he can score at the rim like that's everything you wanted at a wing
0: He's a power wing whose tools you're going to bet on, and at the end of the day, he's 19 years old. He's one of the younger guys in this draft class who missed some considerable time in high school with different injuries, missed the start of this season and is still playing catch-up, finally has a true point guard or a lead guard in Justin Moore, who's been reinserted into that Villanova lineup over the last month or so. Uh, He was out for most of the season due to injury we're starting to see what Whitmore looks like in a really well-organized, comfortable situation for him. And it's an efficient basketball player who can really overwhelm teams with his power and athleticism. Like he is a top tier athlete and guy there. I agree with you. I have him kind of top seven or eight on my own board right now. I think more top half of the lottery, but uh, so many tools to work with now. yeah. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to kind of pivot here. To the rest of the Big East, I think there are two other guys that are commonly getting some like mid to late first round looks on, on a lot of consensus boards. There's Jordan Hawkins, six 6'5 shooter at Connecticut, and then Colby Jones, kind of like a 6'4", 6'5 power guard at Xavier. I consider him almost like a, a Josh Hart type, where he does a little bit of everything and is just a smart, gritty, tough player on the basketball court. Is there one that you're a little bit higher on, and where do you kind of come in on both right now?
1: Yeah, I, I'm actually a lot higher on Colby Jones than Andre Hawkins. It, it depends on how big Hawkins actually is for me to buy in because he's listed, I, I want to say at 6'5 on basketball reference, and he's very good at what he does, but if you look at the numbers year over year for catch and shoot, the guarded and unguarded, it is absurdly different. And part of it is just growth. He got better as a shooter and just better at playing basketball, just natural progression. But it's it feels like it might be an anomaly, so I might just be way overthinking this, but I also don't know. I, I think he's a good shooter, but here's my issue is he's a six five, probably going to be a shooting specialist, right? He's athletic, of course, so he can do other things. But if he's an average shooter at six five, are you are you falling in love with this guy? like I, yeah. I just that's my issue is I don't think I can get behind him just being an average shooter and sticking.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, when you're going to have one signature skill at the NBA level, a team is kind of putting all their eggs in that basket that it's going to translate. And while Hawkins has had some lightning quick releases and some games where he can go absolutely molten from the field, he's also proven, this is in Connecticut's losses and in games where they struggle, is typically where he struggles, where he's either inefficient from three or he's easy to take away. And one of the reasons he's easier to take away is even though he's athletic, he doesn't use those athletic tools to convert near the basket or put a ton of pressure on the rim. So he is very much an off-ball guy, and that does give some concern. Give me a little bit more of a sales pitch on Colby Jones, because like, he's been unbelievable lately, but I've just been a little bit slower to buy into how that, that translates to the NBA level.
1: Yeah, for me, I mean, over the summer, he was somebody who I was looking for returning prospects, and I really liked what he did because I want to say his his numbers were pretty low from three last year, but the free throw percentage was there, and the runner was really strong. And for me, I'm a believer in that stuff. I mean, it worked for Emmanuel quickly and Tyrese Maxey. I don't have a, a ton of like off the top of my head use cases, but it is generally reliable for touch on shooting. And now the shooting is finally there, but. For me, with Colby Jones, I feel like he does a little bit of everything. He's got a long, really long arms, has a great frame, just a modern wing where if he's not scoring, he's passing. If he's not passing, he's playing defense and rebounding. If he's not, you know, if he's having an off night defensively, he's probably scoring. So I feel like he's gonna have a role. He's just that Swiss Army knife guy. His issue is though; I think he's also six five, six six. Will it be enough? But I think he's actually got longer arms. It wouldn't shock me if he ends up at six ten, six eleven wingspan.
0: Yeah, he's he's definitely long and disruptive on defense. He uses that length really well. Uh, the Big East beyond that has a ton of guys who might be in that second round and of maybe even come back to school for another year discussion. Uh, Arthur Kaluma out of Creighton was one that I was really high on preseason. I'm not sure how I feel about him right now. And and I think he might be a guy that needs to go back to school for another year. But if you were to pick one other player in the big East outside of cam Whitmore, Colby Jones and Jordan Hawkins, who would you say is the best pro prospect specifically for 2023's draft?
1: Uh, Yeah, that, that definitely changes. I have an answer for two. So I would actually say it's tough. I want to say Ryan Kalkbrenner because he's just so efficient, but also at the same time, I can see translate is my issue. I'll take a swing, even though I think this guy probably doesn't translate because of he's a, like the, a tweener in the worst way. I'll go with Oso Iguodoro. Mm-hmm. I, I forget how to say it, but um, doesn't shoot. He, he does have some red flags. But if you're willing to invest in just that he's a ridiculously good passer and he can play defense, it, it's worth the swing. I think he's worth taking in the 50s. Are, are you gambling on him changing your franchise, being a key part of a rotation? Maybe not, especially not early, but there is a chance for him to be a rotation player two years from now.
0: Yeah, Igadaro is a, a really fun watch. Uh, plays for Marquette for those out there who haven't been able to watch them play. Like, they're a super fun team. They've got two of the best passers in the country in Iguodaro and a point guard, Tyler Kolek, who really know how to move that thing. A ton of long athletes and shooters around them. Like Super fun, high-paced team. Um, for me, I, I keep leaning on Trey Alexander at Creighton as another one of those, like, yes, he's a little bit undersized to play off ball, but really good feel with the ball in his hands. Great touch, an evolving shooter, and somebody who competes on the defensive end of the floor at that point of attack position. So uh, I've started to really come around on Alexander as being a guy who could sneak into the top 40 on my board here in 2023. Uh, But there's a ton of depth in the Big East. I think any game past that first day, you'll find some fringe 2023 draft prospect, and a ton of really good, fun teams to watch. That's just, in my opinion, one of the underrated conferences in in college basketball right now. But one conference that is not underrated, at least in terms of pro talent, is the SEC. And scouts have been watching them for a long period of time because, by my nature, I think the SEC has the most length and athleticism, particularly in the front line of any conference in the country. That if you can score in the lane in the SEC – If you can be efficient from the field, that's going to translate better to the NBA because you're not going to be so surprised by how much length and size there is on the defensive end of the floor when you get there. Uh, Look, we have to start this conversation with Alabama. They've been one of the best teams in the country, and they have Brandon Miller, who many folks believe is now the top prospect in college basketball and is a threat to go number three, number four in the NBA draft this cycle. There's a lot surrounding him off the court. Let's leave that alone for now. But Rich, what's your evaluation of kind of the skill set that that Brandon brings to the table?
1: Yeah, for me it's just like what doesn't translate. Like yeah. he's a 6-9 scorer, he plays defense. I don't think he's a black hole with the ball he can pass like what's there not to like. At the minimum you draft one of the highest four players. Now granted, a lot of this was said about the numbers repick last year in Jabari Smith, and he struggled. But I don't think I think there's a major difference of the two, and and it's that Brandon Miller struggled going to the basket early in the year, and he's gotten much better at it. I think if you look before and after, I haven't done this myself, but I just imagine before and after that Houston game, the numbers are just drastically different. I think him he learned from a horrible performance. I think he went one oh of eight. 0 of eight yep. And it was it was a brutal game. I was like, yeah, this Brandon Miller guy is kind of overrated. It was one of my first watches. I was a little bit slow to him, and I like I'd heard great things preseason about it, some of the secret scrimmages and things like that where he dominated. I mean, the TCU story is pretty crazy where he scored. I think he had 33 points and 30 of them came in the second half. And right. and he wanted to guard like Mike Miles. All this stuff. It was a wild, wild story. But I was I was very slow to him. But after that, you love seeing guys. Progress in the middle of the season, learn from what they've yeah. done wrong. And that's what he's done. There's just no like massive flaw to him. And we're in a, in a draft where a lot of guys have like this one glaring flaw, his isn't a skill that his glaring flaw is. Yeah. And it's something, you know, I don't even want to talk about. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. It, it, look. It, I could rave about the improvements that he's made in season for a long time on this podcast and and I don't want to, you know, keep you up past your bedtime doing so, Rich. So, like for me, th- this is a no-brainer that Brandon has played himself into being the best prospect in college basketball because he has such a ridiculously high floor, but a really high ceiling to continue to tap into as well as he gets more fluid with the ball in his hands. He unlocks a little bit more as a passer. He's solid right now, but he can be a little bit better as he develops some reads. Uh, out of ball screens and and just is a threat to pull up in different spaces. The one thing I keep coming back to with Miller is that Alabama under Nate Oates is a very analytics driven offense. They want everything at the rim or they want it from three and coming into his college career, particularly the AAU level, he was very mid-range heavy, loved isolations, loved one-on-one plays because a tough bucket at the elbow time and time and time again. I think that he's a real three level scorer at the next level. And, and that's something that has always been intriguing to me. Once he gets to a system that's going to allow him to be more of a threat in that area, he may really explode on the offensive end of the floor. Uh, outside of him, though, I think there are probably three lottery type of prospects here in the SEC. Cason Wallace from Kentucky is one. I want to put him on the back burner for a second because Kentucky is – Kind of an intriguing team to me that we may bring up in a second here. But Arkansas has the other two players. Anthony Black, who's kind of a 6'7 or 6'8 lead guard, but not a very good shooter. And then Nick Smith, who's more of a 6'5 scoring combo guard, who has had some injury struggles this year and is, uh, quite frankly, probably the most to gain or to lose from a a positive run here at the end of the season, just because everyone's going to be looking at how he performs. What's your take on Smith and Black right now? And quite frankly, is this Arkansas team going to create enough floor spacing without really good three-point shooting to showcase what either of them can do at their best?
1: Yeah, that that's what worries me. Um, are you going to rely on Nick Smith, who's been, he has high scoring upside, but he's been inconsistent in that regard. He makes some interesting decisions to say the least, but also Anthony Black, like he's He's just not a great shooter. His form is very two motions and it, it's clunky, uh, but his touch is there, which is good. I, I think touch is better than form, but at the same time, like you do have to get better at that. For me, I've seen Anthony black. Um, I know you asked about Smith, but like Anthony black, I've seen him cause he's from Dallas. He's at Duncanville or he was at Duncanville last year. I got to see my private workout last year. He, he, he is definitely very skilled, six seven guard. I don't think he's a true point guard. I think he's like a wing who creates and plays yeah. some point guard, but he's not a full time point guard. For me, the issue is he's just he's so raw. Still, I think people are really forgetting that, which makes me excited about his ceiling. But somebody's got to unlock that. The rawness isn't a skill issue; it's really a passiveness issue. I feel like a lot of times, and and he's gotten more aggressive. I think he shows enough flashes that you can buy into it, where he'll play a little bit scared. Going to contact, going to the rim, you know, he doesn't want to shoot over a contest, things like that, where you've just got to get more confident and be okay with, hey, I might miss this and I might look stupid. I might get airball yelled every single time I touch the ball again, but at least like, you know, it doesn't kill the flow of the offense. So that's my issue with black real quick on Nick Smith. I'm much lower on him, I think, than most. I like the general scoring ability. But I don't trust him to run a pick-and-roll, and that scares me a lot with a guard. When you're a guard and you cannot decisively run a pick-and-roll uh, other than just scoring for yourself and personally, I don't think he knows how to time the screener as a pick-and-roll. I'd love to pick your brain on that because I, I went and watched every pick-and-roll possession because it's really just not that many of his, yeah. including passes. And a lot of the passes are turnovers. His accuracy is rough. But the thing that stood out to me was he would see the screener come. He would get set. And granted, some of it was bad screening. Like those bigs aren't, you know, none of them are NBA prospects. But how much of it is him not knowing how to time the screen and how much of it is a team issue? So I'm curious to pick your brain on his pick and roll issues. Yeah,
0: I'm going to have to go back and and watch a little bit closer for that. Like, you know, I've I've seen a couple of Smith's games, but I have not done a deep dive on him individually to try to to find or, or unearth some of those things. I do find just off the top of my head that to be a little bit more of a correctable error that you can teach a little bit of patience that particularly at the NBA level, when there's a lot more spacing on the floor and, and guys who are professional screeners, you can find ways to really make that work. Uh, but it, to me, it's more so the reads. That's that's the troublesome part because that takes a lot longer to develop, to have a, a feel for and to understand uh, particularly as a guy who's so wired to score and has the ability to make jump shots off the bounce, he's going to face a lot of aggressive defenses, and he needs to be quick and accurate at getting rid of the basketball. So uh, the challenge is we're not going to find the answers to any of that while he's at Arkansas, because they are probably the worst spaced offense of any team that's going to make the NCAA tournament. And that's no fault of Eric Musselman's. It's kind of the players that they have on their roster, a couple injuries that they've endured with Trevon Brazil being out for the rest of the season. Like they're losing some floor spacing and that does two things. One is it, it makes it much harder for Nick Smith to have space to make those reads as a passer. So we're not going to find that out, but it also puts a lot of pressure on Anthony black to, Offensively, like his best skill is probably attacking the basket and then creating for others when he draws two. It's hard to draw two when the lane is already crowded and they're begging you to kick it out to somebody else. So this Arkansas team is going to be a tough watch moving forward, and I don't know what to do with that in terms of ranking Smith or Black because I like both a lot as individual prospects. I just don't think that they're going to be in a position to show well with the Razorbacks the rest of the year. Where, where are you at on Kason Wallace for Kentucky?
1: I I think I buy in enough. Um, yeah. You know, I I know for those who watched his brother in the Conference USA at UTSA, like he was a bulldog on defense, and Kason shares a lot of those similarities. He works hard. I assume it, the same thing is going to apply for Kason, and also like he's he's just more gifted at a younger age. And Kason's on it, or I'm sorry, Keaton, his brother is on a two way contract. So very different prospects, but. I look at Casey Wallace. I know early in the year he was shooting like 40-something percent from three with a 65% free throw percentage. I was a little bit concerned with how that much of that was real, but he's actually proven it to be real. The number has dropped on the threes, but the free throw percentage has gone up to a very respectable number. He's now at 35 and a half from three, 76% from the line. And for me, that's plenty. And as we all know, Kentucky hides their guards for what they do at the NBA level. See Tyrese Maxey. I think I'm willing to buy in. He has enough of those tools that – he's a guy you gamble on, right? Like he probably has the work ethic. He has the mentality very clearly and he has the shooting and enough guard skills. He has had some duds that scared me very recently, but I, I'm willing to bet those were more of just one offs more than actual red flags.
0: Elite character guy, elite intangibles guy elite team defender while also being a superb on ball defender. Like he has some of the quickest hands and best instincts that I've found of a guard defensive prospect over the last few years. I I keep calling him like I'm no Kevin O'Connor and trying to throw out those like wonky ringer, you know, player comparisons, but like he's who Patrick Beverly thinks he is like in terms of how he plays on the defensive end of the floor and then actually being able to knock down those shots and do a little bit of creation on the offensive end. I'm, I'm really in on case and Wallace, but these three guards that we just referenced in the sec, all somewhere in that like lottery jumble of guys. And they all seem to have a lot to play for. Kentucky has been better over the last month, figured out a few things on offense. They're, like, out of that 1998 John Calipari motion offense slog, and they're now into, like, 2002-2003 motion offense with, like, slightly better decision-making and spacing. It's been a little bit of an improvement from them. I think part of that has to do with Casey moving more from that off-ball guard spot to being more of the on-ball creator, and they're putting the ball in his hands a little bit more. But at the end of the day, like, these two teams, Kentucky and Arkansas, are not very pretty watches on the offensive end of the floor, and I think that that really challenges us as scouts to be creative and projecting forward what their roles might be. Uh, Rich, before we move on from the SEC, any other guys that you want to mention?
1: Yeah, I gotta ask, what do you think ends up happening with Gigi Jackson's stock? <sighs> because, like my my pitch is like I'm keeping him near the lottery because yes, it has been a disaster but he's he turned eighteen I think three months ago now, so he's still pretty new he'll be eighteen for the start of the season in the n b a he's six ten he creates and i he'll he has the defensive tools to potentially defend. I don't think he's a good defender right now, no. but what do you think teams see in terms of like his draft stock like where do you see his stock end up being come draft night do you think he's a lottery guy post lottery where he is now what do you think
0: yeah i mean I'm a kind of in that like 12 to 20 range I think there are a lot of safe spots for him to kind of land and I would not let him get outside of the top 20 just with the monstrous upside that he has look there he's going to be a polarizing player and prospect not just because he didn't perform well at a young age but I think the manner in which he achieved his results is kind of off-putting to a lot of folks whether it's the lack of effort on the defensive end of the floor consistent, isolating and jacking on offense while standing on the perimeter and ball begging time and time and time again, and then going on Instagram live and kind of complaining sometimes about teammates or coaches not getting him the ball in situations that he needs. He, he does not come off as somebody who's really mature and ready to handle being a pro right away, but he is far too talented to be a guy that slips out of the first round. Uh, I think that the Gigi essentially has to turn pro this year that he can't necessarily admit defeat or go through another inefficient college basketball season because then he will not be a first-round pick, that there's still going to be enough intrigue, enough athletic tools there that he can show through workouts and and this pre-draft circuit that he is entrancing enough of a prospect to go in that range. I think that a, a team that doesn't have an immediate need to win right away would be really smart to try to snatch up Gigi kind of outside that top 12 area. Uh, But again, I have been really high on his upside for most of this cycle. I can certainly understand though, why others are starting to fall on him.
1: Yeah. I think Utah would be perfect for, for totally
0: totally agree. Totally agree there. And look, the sec doesn't just have only lottery guys or, or these five that we've talked about here. There are plenty of second round targets, and guys that are, are really fascinating. But we'll kind of move on here to, to two final power conferences that we want to get into. I know this is your draft specialty time. It's the Big 12, uh, probably the best conference in college basketball right now. You're a Dallas area guy, so I know TCU and Mike Miles has been the one area you and I have always shared common love for. But before we get to the Horn Frogs, uh, let's just dive into kind of the two guys that are at the top of the list there, Keontae George at Baylor. Grady Dick at Kansas I don't want to call Keontae necessarily polarizing but there are he's more of an acquired taste so to speak That I think there are a lot of folks who are really high on him out there and then those who think of him as I'm worried about the inefficiency as a score some of the athletic tools that he brings to the table is there one area on the spectrum that you kind of fall with Keontae
1: I I still like him I think If you're looking for somebody that might get soured on come draft night, I could see it being him in terms of these consensus top 10 guys, because like, it just doesn't stay steady. Like we know this Jerome Robinson rose to the lottery, like things like that, things that nobody expects weird stuff happens. I could see Keontae being one of the victims to a riser, right? He's only six, three, maybe six, four. I mean, I think he's truly capped at six, four. I've seen him now two years running in person. And first of all, his shot it's really interesting when I saw him a year and a half ago, two years ago, his shot was beautiful. I mean, I think to this day it was the best shot I've ever seen in my life. Like most beautiful form. The release was like, it was, I could write a book about how perfect it was, but now he changed it a little bit, his elbow and wrist snap a little bit differently. And I don't know if it was for the better. I I don't think he's a bad shooter by any means or anything like that, but I think that, I noticed it last year at IMG, and he definitely did change it. He's only shooting 35%. I think that really underestimates him. I think it's a little bit of a process, though, that when you change a shot, Mikael Bridges is somebody that comes to mind. It doesn't happen overnight. It it takes a minute to to really get comfortable with the release and perfect it. But with Keontae, what I I think holds him together is if you watch his non-conference tape, again, kind of one of these things where, the same way I said with Lively, it's not the greatest competition with some of these teams. But he does a lot of special things. I think his passing was really on display, which is something to say, hey, will his passing ever be, you know, great? Like, it wasn't on conference. Was it just a fluke? And then also his defense. I I think he can really stay in front of guys man to man. I will say when I went to TCU, I know a lot of scouts that were there. was a pretty packed house because they were also going to the G League game right after. Um, They they were very sour on Keontae. There were some higher level guys than just scouts there. And I I do know that there were some people that were souring on Keontae because he just wasn't impacting the game at all on offense.
0: Yeah, he can go through these spurts where he's electric from the field on offense. He makes good decisions as a passer. He's really hot from three. He can create for himself out there. And then he kind of disappears for some time. So I've actually thought of one kind of common thread with Keontae at this point, which is that he doesn't handle intense ball pressure well whether it's guys that really get into him on the perimeter and try to speed him up, or if it's traps out of ball screens, hard hedges, aggressive coverages, that's where he tends to struggle a little bit. And and in the big 12 tournament that we have coming up here, they're going to draw Iowa state in that first game. And Iowa state has beaten them twice, has been really aggressive at getting into Keontae and following him off of screens. When Baylor tries to run these different floppy actions and, and ways to get him open off ball he struggles against the Cyclones, and what that's leaving me to wonder is whether he's actually better served going to a good team where he's more of a fourth option, where he can be that like catch-and-shoot guard who kind of creates for himself on second-side actions because it's going to prevent him from being that number one focal point in an offense that is always receiving pressure and a lot of extra attention from the opponents. So that's kind of where I've gone on Keontae. Like I'm not necessarily souring on him. I just think the team environment, the fit and what he's going to be asked to do at the next level is going to be crucial to whether he finds success.
1: Yeah. I mean, sorry, one, one thing on there. I mean, for him, like you said, it's how much can he play off ball? How well will that shot translate? And then what else will he be doing when that shot's not hitting? Like the he really has to prove that. And I think you're right. Iowa State is a perfect matchup of proving what his role would
0: be in the NBA. Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, having the shot fall and play off ball. You'd mentioned what do you do when the shot's not falling to impact the game? Well, let's talk about Grady Dick then because the Kansas Jayhawks might be one of the best teams in the country. And, and a big reason for that is that Grady Dick is an elite shooter and projects as a movement specialist. I, we rarely see freshmen kind of come out and stamp themselves into this mold that NBA teams from all the research that I've done and conversations I've had tend to want multiple years of data on guys who are going to come in and be shooting specialists because there's no margin for error there they need to know that somebody's that elite of a shooter. And Grady Dick to be a one-and-done in this conversation, where I even hear scouts asking, like, is he as good of a shooter as Clay Thompson? Is That's a little rich for me, but I've heard the conversation. And it really speaks to just what he's been able to carve out throughout the season uh, on the offensive end of the floor. So I'm going to open it up to you with, uh, like, a multi-pronged question here. Like, is the shooting really that good – Does he impact the game in a multitude of ways that leave you comfortable? And where are you at on the defense? Because that's the one area that he's definitely going to have to prove his worth at if he wants to stay on the floor in postseason basketball.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think for him on ball, no, he's not a good defender at all. Um, He's rough to say the least, but he's smart. I I think he's an unbelievably, and this applies to both ends, He, he is very intelligent on just on the floor he knows where to be he knows when to be there and he knows how to get there like I I think those three things just really that combination his feel for the game is unreal he will rotate well on defense on defense he's not going to be somebody you can just easily switch on because they don't realize what's happening he's going to fight to make sure the matchup doesn't happen I I think a little bit better than he's giving credit for also he's 6'8 he's going to have a little bit of a margin for error as for the shooting what's kind of crazy (laughs) is he does all of his damage from the top of the key in the wings. He is not a corner shooter for, I I have the numbers in front of me. He is seven of 22 from the left wing or from the left corner and eight of 35 from the right corner. So that's a combined like 20 something percent, which is really rough, which is crazy because he's already a great shooter and let's be real. It's the easiest spot to shoot at. He's probably going to grow into that. So I get the, I get the hype about him being such an all time shooter I think he is the best shooter in the class. Uh, I'll kind of get to that when we talk about Jet Halbert, because that's very obviously the the competition. But for me, if you watch the first 10 minutes of that TCU Kansas game, I was blown away. And also there were 33 at least NBA scouts and, and executives there at that game. So he made a name for himself just from those 10 minutes where he would put up a three immediately snake around the defender uh, and just get the put back, find somebody else. He just has such a dominant feel for the game. I really do think it elevates more than just his shooting. It makes up for his weaknesses.
0: Yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned that because part of the reason he's the exception to the rule of wanting multiple years on guys to know if they're going to translate is because he knows exactly how to operate out of screens, out of the attention that he gets from defenses is such a lethal shooter that he he doesn't stop moving. He doesn't stop positively impacting the offense when he's out there on the floor. Really, really fun team construct player. It's just also going to take a, a solid team construct on the defensive end to mask some of the deficiencies that he has there. Rich, I got to do it for you. It's, <laughs> I it's, knew it was coming. <laughs> it, it's, t- it's TCU time, baby. Let's go with those horned frogs and our, our beloved Mike Miles. Where, where are you at with Miles as a draft prospect this year? And, and particularly in the context of knowing that smaller, undersized guards in the NBA are kind of a dying breed.
1: Yeah. Uh, Do you want the full on sales pitch?
0: Oh, Uh, you know, I'm a huge fan, but let's do it. (laughs) So uh,
1: for context, Mike Miles is in his third year of college basketball. He played with Cade Cunningham, uh, Greg Brown, uh, some other guys in AAU. And he is 20 years old. He is three months younger than Brandon Miller. Let's start with that. Uh, He is the youngest upperclassman in the country. And he's also a second team, all second team, all big 12 guy. For me, I see him potentially his very best case is being the Brunson role. Maybe not this current Brunson because I've used that for now a year, so that's kind of outdated. But the Mavs Brunson, where you get this second side piece kind of guy. Uh, that's not the right word for it, but you get the secondary guy who. Uh, I realized what I just said. I think it just made you lose it. <laughs> Sometimes I hear, I don't hear what I say. Uh, but <laughs> you get that that's second weird. piece is oh, what I meant to say. <laughs> But he's a, uh, you know, he's six one. He doesn't have long arms. He's a great athlete. He's a floor general. I think he's played very differently from how he'll be played in the yeah. NBA, where he doesn't get to even play off ball with while playing with another guard. Which he'll play with other guards and play off ball because of that. They trap him like crazy. He plays with a team that doesn't have three point shooting really right. outside of him, and it hurts his assist numbers. He sees the floor so well. I see him making the same. Quite literally the exact same passes that Luka Doncic makes from the half court trap it's pretty nuts i think he's advanced in and feel for the game for his age again 20 years old as a junior lots of experience i think he can hold his own enough on defense in college will it scale up probably not because he's got short arms he's a good athlete but it, you just got to look at what does scale up but overall for me i think you have somebody who at least has a high floor, is a very high level backup point guard and, and depending on his work ethic. And I think it's a high work ethic. I, I know, you know, I've seen him work out personally and things like that. I do think he's somebody who he sticks in the NBA. So obviously I'm biased. I've seen every game of his at TCU, but I think he's legit.
0: I think he is as well-rounded of an offensive player as you'll find in college basketball, and the context is key because at TCU, with the way he's guarded and teammates he has, he doesn't get to showcase all of those skills. But he's six-one and built like a fullback. Like he's a truck. I've really appreciated how he uses his physicality to get himself to the free throw line, out of the pick and roll, as well as being able to score from all levels, create for others. And like you said, the off-ball offense stuff is key to me. I think that's something he can really do at the next level. Scalable to play next to another star player, particularly one on the wing. It's just he's small. That's pretty much what it comes down to at this point. So I'm going to give you one more TCU thing. I actually really like Emmanuel Miller. I'm actually a big fan of his as a a fringy draft prospect, more of like an undrafted guy that I would have a priority grade on as opposed to trying to take him the top 58 in this draft class, but I really, really like him. I, I don't know if he'll come out this year or try to use a fifth year of eligibility, but big, big, big fan. Yeah,
1: I think it depends on what the the tournament looks like for them. For me, I'm iffy. I, I think he his three point numbers are nice, but he doesn't really shoot them. Yeah. In the frame, though, like the the general archetype for him is appealing. Right, six seven, great athlete. And he, for those who don't know, he's brothers of fellow draft prospect. Emmanuel, or I'm sorry, <laughs> Leonard Miller uh, of the G League Ignite. But, you know, he has decent shooting form. He's a great athlete, great defender, and has an insane motor. So it is something where it's workable. And he's a little bit older, but it's worth a gamble. I think he's a better prospect than somebody like RJ Nemhard a couple of years ago from TCU, who he stuck around for a bit on a two way. So I think he has a chance.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's about where does he end up going in that draft? But Big 12 is. Always a bloodbath. We saw three ranked teams lose to three unranked teams in conference. The final Saturday of the regular season, there. So don't be surprised if there are upsets or topsy turvy things moving forward. But this is probably a maybe a seven bid league going in the NCAA tournament, which is bonkers to think about considering there are only ten teams. In the Big Twelve, they might need to rename that thing. That uh, the numbers don't seem to to add up there. But we've got one last Power Conference to go through, Rich, and, and this is the bloodbath of all bloodbaths when it comes to leagues because there is very little separation from the second best team in, in the Big Ten down to maybe like the eleventh or twelfth team. There's so many. Good, but not great programs. And what we've seen over the last couple of years is a trend in conference, which is very few teams from the big 10 actually make it to the sweet 16. That they get into the NCAA tournament, they put up these impressive resumes, but they all kind of beat each other up and none of them are sensational. And that leads to early March exits. So we have maybe four or five different NBA draft prospects that a lot of teams are going to be tuning into, particularly four or five first round guys. So we need to make sure that we have the ability to evaluate them in in a short sample remaining because I don't have my money on any of them moving into the second weekend in March for uh, the NCAA tournament here. Michigan has been an intriguing one to me over the last few weeks because there's a groundswell of uh, support for the conversation of maybe having Michigan point guard Kobe Bufkin ahead of 6'8 shooter Jet Howard. Howard came out of the gates with an impressive start to the year and really ended up being close to that top 10 or lottery conversation. And now it seems to be trending more towards Buffkin as Howard is starting to fall a little bit. You'd mentioned Jet as the other threat to be best shooter in this class. Where are you at on Jet? Where are you at at Kobe? How does this all weigh in on your mind
1: right now? Yeah, so uh, <laughs> I I do like Jet. I think he's really fun, but... If you're talking and, and he probably is a better just overall shooter than Grady Dick, I think he can shoot a little bit more versatile more smoothly, like he can come off the screen and make it look like it's nothing. Whereas Grady Dick, it's kind of two motions, right? You notice the catch and the move and then the shot, whereas Jed Howard just does it all in one motion. So I think things like that do matter. But what also matters for me is I talked about that feel for the game. And I just I think Jed Howard's is a little bit, I don't know the right word, maybe masked a little bit. I think it's not terrible, but he will shoot you into some bad, bad shot, like just terrible shot selection. And I think a lot of it, he gets a leash because his dad is the coach and that's an unfair criticism probably. But at the same time, like how much of a of a leash is he going to get when he when he jacks up a, a contested 28 footer? for no reason, 10 seconds into the shot clock, he's going to get benched. Whereas he kind of just gets a benefit of the doubt. It's like, all right, play one more and see if you do it again. So the feel for the game just really worries me. The turnovers are low, but those bad shots are turnovers. So it's not a true turnover.
0: And then he's six, eight and and really struggles to play low on the defensive end of the floor too. That like, if he's not shooting, what does he do to really contribute to your team? And, And that's my issue. Grady Dick, he does other things because he
1: finds ways to do other things. Does Jet Howard? I, I personally don't think he does. Yeah. Right uh, now, at
0: least. I've been souring a little bit more on Jet. You know, I never really bought into like the top 10 hype that we were hearing. And a huge part of that was just the defensive end of the floor for me. But as the season has gone on, like he's had every opportunity to add different aspects of his game. I agree with the assertion that he shoots them out of games at times because he does have a long leash. And part of that is just Michigan. Like they don't have a ton of perimeter scorers. But what we've actually seen lately is Kobe Bufkin start to take that mantle and find his confidence as a pull-up scorer, as somebody who can create his own shot. And a lot of that came while Jet was out with an ankle injury, that we saw Kobe kind of take the keys to the offense, be effective and efficient for Michigan, and really move forward with him. Are you a first-round grade guy on Kobe Bufkin right now? Like, Do you think he's going to end up going in the top 30?
1: I, I think he's going to get there. I know. I want to say it was the Northwestern game when he had 20 points. It was like insane efficiency. There were a lot of NBA people in the building. It won a lot of people over. So I think things like that matter. Will him not playing in the NCAA tournament, probably an NIT team, change the stock? Who knows? He has. The, he's a guy who has the potential to be like NIT player of the tournament or whatever. But who knows if he who would even play? So I, I like him. It's probably for me, the reason he's not in my top 30 yet is just because I haven't really honed in on him as much as I should have. So That's like a lack of just research on my end. But I think just from the raw footage I've seen, you know, just the raw like two, three games I've seen. It's actually pretty impressive, though. I mean, he runs a very clean pick and roll. He can shoot like it's a pretty modern skill set for a point guard.
0: Yeah, big, decent size at like six four ish uh, so he's not a smaller guard. I don't think he has positional versatility, but he's certainly not small for his position. He's also really young for a sophomore. You know, he's the same age as Jet Howard, who was a freshman. Uh, so I think that there's something to be said for younger guys who you know, he's not going to turn 20 until after the NBA draft. A lot of upside for him seeing the trajectory that he's on. I'm starting to buy in more as a first-round pick, but he was definitely a guy. That I heard about more right before this breakout of like, watch out for Kobe Buffkin. A lot of scouts were starting to buzz on him. And now that he's blown up a little bit more, I think that confirmation bias on the scouting side may lead to him really going in that first round area. Look, we've got two other freshmen in the Big Ten that are worth mentioning here Jalen Hood, Shafino the point guard at Indiana, 6'5", maybe 6'6", really good feel out of ball screens, elite pull-up shooter in the mid-range going to his right, and a very good point-of-attack defender. Who knows if he can stretch defenses to three. On the other side of the coin, we've got Bryce Sensabaugh, the 6'5", 6'6"-ish power wing for Ohio State, with true three-level scoring potential, but kind of a lower-feel guy and very abysmal defender at this point in his career. Uh, both of them kind of one and done prospects right now. But uh, do you have one that you favor more than the other?
1: I, it's tough. Jalen Hood know is one of these guys where he does everything you want him to do in in the season, right? Where he starts out, the stats are a little bit rough. Him and both Malik Renault, both five star, four star recruits, start the season pretty rough. They don't impact the game that much, and they progressively get better. He had one flash earlier this year where he had a 20, maybe it was even, I think it might've been a second 30 point game against Purdue a couple of weeks ago. Now that I think about it, but he's one of these guys where he shows the flash and then kind of studies off. And then he goes back and makes it more consistent where it's not going to be that high level, but he does have high level games on just lower volume. And then he has that massive breakout game, like the Purdue game and the Purdue game won me over so much. I, I think yeah. he ran if you want to watch the best pick and roll of any prospect, I think in, of just a one game sample size, watch that game because he made z- almost zero mistakes out of the pick and roll, both passing and shooting. And also my favorite, my very favorite play, you said, you know, he's great going, right. One thing I love, this is just makes me so optimistic is that he has a left-handed floater already. I don't know if you remember, but like Devin Booker, when he he hit a big left-handed floater in the 2021 playoffs and people are talking like, this guy's right-handed, hitting a moving right, lefty floater. Like, that's tough. That's really tough. So I like him a lot. Um, as for Bryce Sensabaugh, he's somebody who, he has every physical tool. I think when you look at him on ball isolation, he actually is pretty good on defense. That's exactly where mm-hmm. all the, the pros stop. Or <laughs> that's like the last pro and the only mm-hmm. pro for him on defense because he just has no idea how to... <laughs>
0: <laughs> he yeah. just
1: doesn't know how to play defense. So like, I, I don't mean to be rude, but like it, it's really rough. He just does not know how to play defense. So for that, I th- I think Jalen Shafino, his shot is real. Bryce sensible is a better shooter, but the field is a big gap. And yeah. to me, that's where Hutchifino wins.
0: It's going to be flavor of the week for a lot of these Big Ten guys here, because you've got Sensabaugh, who's high tools, low feel. You've got Huchifino, who's a big guard with high feel, but some inconsistent production. You've got Howard, the tallest of the group, is a really good shooter, but you know the limitations pretty much everywhere else. Bufkin, who's that late rising high upside guard. And then the last guy we haven't really talked about is Chris Murray at Iowa, who. You know, is a really good, in my estimation, role player in terms of how he projects to the next level, more of a three and D type of guy, but solid tools doesn't turn it over a ton or make very many mistakes. His twin brother, Keegan fourth overall pick last year. I know there's some people on the internet who ask those questions like, what is the difference between the two? Like now Keegan's just much more polished of a basketball player in so many different ways, but Chris's is, is a good prospect as well. Like all five of these guys could very easily go in the top 23, 24 spots on draft night. We also could see one of them start to fall a little bit more. Maybe one of them take a huge rise. Like, like we said, the big 10 is a bloodbath right now. There are so many teams beating each other up and so many prospects that are failing to get separation from each other as a result. I think the Big Ten tournament and for those that can play on into the NCAAs or NIT is going to be really impactful for this crop, maybe more than any other guys that we've talked about on this podcast as far
1: yeah i mean I, I completely share the chris murray stuff i don't think he's i think he's a very late first rounder still for me just because the age and stuff but i do think he profiles well as a as a three and d guy that's exactly what i see him as i'm i'm curious you don't mind me adding one sure. more name and like you might know where this is going but i really like trace jackson davis i i really do i think i'll give you my two cents i'm curious to hear yeah. yours but He's a pick and roll big that literally just cannot play pick and roll anymore because teams have figured him out so much that they in there because there's defensive three in the key. Zach Eady can sit in the paint and go, no, thank you. And in the NBA, that just doesn't happen. And also Trace Jackson Davis is being game plan for a lot harder than he will be in the NBA. And that being said, he's still putting up 20, 20 and five almost effortlessly so what do you think of him translating if you don't mind me uh picking your brain on that
0: i mean i I coached against trace when he was in high school and remember when he was a little bit younger like his feel for the game has developed so much over the last several years uh it's really insane though he can put the ball on the floor and rebound and run and transition now handle with kind of grace as guys are are either pressuring him or other bigs are coming out of the lane but i keep going back to the fact that he's very left-hand dominant Out of every year he's been in college, basketball is kind of an undersized big. He's been asked to add a jump shot to his arsenal, and he hasn't really done it. And I think a lot of the the aptitude that he has comes from post-ups right now, that he's a really high-field passer out of double teams. He knows how to score effectively one-on-one on on the block. I'd love to see him be that pick-and-roll big at the next level that you're talking about. Uh, But I'm... I'm not as sold on the fit really coming in and being great for him at the next level. So I see him more as a second round guy that I obviously understand the tools and and buying in on some of that, but uh, I'm just, I'm not fully sold because we've been asking him year after year to try to add a little bit more diversity to his shot profile. uh, And he hasn't necessarily done it.
1: That's fair. I mean, I know his free throw percentage has gone up. It, it, Would it shock you if he was just somebody, you know, at the combine, like everybody has to shoot, like, what if he just shot randomly? Well, like he's just been hiding it or something. Like, I think it could potentially happen where he works on it for that month in between and who knows, but I I don't disagree with a lot of it. The size is really what scares me. Yeah. He has long arms, but it's hard to be a six, nine big. Like, I mean, the comparison I have is actually a six, nine big and it's Dwight Powell, like with defense and Dwight Powell has been good. Um, you know, I, I think he's a second round guy, though, who returns good value is how I see Trace Jackson Davis. Yeah,
0: and, and I think Powell's just a little bit bigger uh, than Trace, even in, in that regard. So probably. Yeah. But that's the the, the six power conferences here. Rich, I, I got to tell you, this was super fun. We got to have you on again and, and start doing some more stuff together because I, I really enjoy this. Before we get out of here, let the people know, what do you have going on? What, what new work can we expect from Rich? And uh, where can people find you?
1: Appreciate it. You put up with uh, with me calling Mike Mo- or Jalen Brunson a side piece, so thank you very much for that. Uh, but, no, it's been great. And also, one one thing before I plug what I do, uh, you you scared me twice with baseball names. You said your your friend Joey Gallo, and I was very starstruck <laughs> for a minute. And then you said Tyler Kolick, who I think was also a top draft prospect like back in the day, which I I knew him, but like you know, that's just really uh threw me off i was like all right do i need to learn baseball real quick i I mean like to talk on here at a high level but uh really appreciate you having me i i do locked on and be a big board uh i'm on generally tuesdays and wednesdays with rafael barlow and then doing stuff just writing with sb nation and maps draft myself so um just kind of covering the draft hoping to be at the combine in in uh two months from now
0: so that's the next moves yeah, it's coming up, man. Uh, thank you all for, for listening and following. If please leave a comment, uh, you know, rate, subscribe, do all those different things that everyone asks you to do with their socials. You can find mine on YouTube, Adam Spinella, the box and one underscore on Twitter. And then if you want any written content and, and kind of video stuff to follow up our discussions on each conference, we've got over on our Substack, conference by conference previews of some of the best NBA draft prospects, as well as some thoughts there. But uh Till next time, we'll see you later. Hoopaholics, thanks for tuning in.